Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they may speak against you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Let us be in the spirit of prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Heavenly Father, you are the author of all that has ever been or ever will be. You are our loving parent who has given us everything that we have. We trust in your love for all our needs. May your holy name be glorified and praised by all that we do. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Loving God, we know that we have often strayed from your commandments and have failed to honor you, both by our words and by our deeds. Help and guide us to do your will, serving others while faithfully serving you also. Through your word and spirit, Use us as your ambassadors to this foreign land where you have placed us. Preserve and guide your church, Lord, that it may serve as a beacon to all who truly seek you. Help us to bring peace and love to our communities so that your kingdom is known wherever your adopted children dwell. Give us this day our daily bread in your love, Lord, you have given food to sustain us. In abundance, you have also given us the spiritual food, which gives us meaning, purpose, and hope. May you bring a lavish harvest of both types for those in need and to your glory. Give us the wisdom and faith to place our trust only in you, and not in leaders of this world. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As your, as your son Jesus told his disciples, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Father, please grant us a forgiving attitude that we might have hope for your forgiveness. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Through your spirit, give us strength to avoid seeking our personal gain or pleasure at the expense of others. Help us to see that the devil has provided many opportunities to distract us from your purposes. Through the internet, mind-altering substances, entertainment, rulers, and powers of this world, he has led many astray. Strengthen us to flee from these entrapments. Grant us discernment to see evil where it hides and help us to avoid entanglement with those who are your enemies. You delivered your people out of Egypt. 
Likewise, you have liberated us from the darkness of pain, despair, and death through your Son, Jesus Christ. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Appreciate it, Steve. And uh, I'll just add to that. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, uh, yeah, we're in, uh, we're in the book of First Peter studying this idea of a compelling community. In fact, we're just going through the entire thing. And um, here's, here's sort of the line of thought I want us to go down uh, as, we, as we enter into this. I want to consider um, how we should feel in the world, especially in our direct context, in like the city of Tucson or in the sort of subcontext you might be in, how should you, how should you feel? Should you feel at home there? Um, should you feel like you belong? Or uh, as, as the cultural, the new cultural icon, uh, Eddie Munson of Stranger Things, right? Should you feel like an outsider? Uh, Eddie Munson's going to get a lot of uh, a lot of airtime with me this evening, so brace yourselves. But there was an interview with him. I don't know if any of you saw the interview uh, with Joseph Quinn, who played uh, Eddie Munson. And he's you know he gets one season in Stranger Things out of the four, and a fan expressed just the deep appreciation they had to him as an actor uh, for portraying somebody who was an outsider who they could relate to. And you could tell he was just emotionally affected by hearing this, just how much his character uh, meant to this fan. Um, so do you feel at home um, with your people and your, in your context and your part of the city? Or do you relate to that fan who said, I, I feel like an outsider and it's nice to feel like there's a connection uh, with other outsiders? And then consider this, how, how does God factor into this for you? Does connection to God in your mind um, hinder yourself being an insider, uh, being in community and close to people, or, um, or does, it, you know, does it help or hinder? Uh, and if you were Eddie Munson, and I'm, I'm going to try to steer away from spoilers here, but the religious people hate you um, if you're Eddie Munson, but all of a sudden you find your deepest connection fighting against an evil spiritual force with a band of friends who have hope. Does it hinder for you or does it help to have a community of people to be connected to God? Eddie Munson, as fictional as he is, um, experienced both being an outsider and an insider. Which one do you relate to the most, and are you open to feeling both? I'm curious really quick, who, who has watched Str Stranger Things season four? I got about a third of you. Okay, that's good. The rest of you are just lost, and that's okay. You can, uh, you can go check it out. You can go check it out sometime. The final question, though, for now is, what does this idea have to do with the Bible? What, why, why bring this up? Why open with Eddie Munson? And, uh, and that's what I'll get into. So we're studying, as you know, First Peter. And the Apostle Peter is writing a letter to Christians, uh, a couple, couple groups of Christians, Jewish converts, uh, people who had been Jewish and had converted into Christianity, and new believers uh, who had been in the same area, usually kind of out on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. And Peter has framed his letter to them. He said they're kind of like 
They're kind of like strangers. They're like exiles. And he uses that word again uh, in the scripture we're studying today. And he is he's reaching out to them because he's an apostle. And to be an apostle means somebody who is sent by Jesus to further the mission of Jesus. That's how Peter, the disciple of Jesus, felt. He had been sent by Jesus to further the mission of Jesus. And that is to build the kingdom of God among a people that were called by God out throughout the world. That's the mission of Jesus. They, a, a people who are part of God's kingdom, enabled by God's spirit, um, and brought near by God's grace. So Peter's encouraging these people to live a, a certain way of life. He's telling them here, abstain from passions of their flesh and keep their conduct honorable for reason so that unbelievers who they lived amongst um, would, would notice. He's saying that they, would, that they would actually see and experience that and it would change their view of who God is. And he used some analogies to explain what their lives should feel like. He said they should be sojourners and exiles. That's, that's what you heard Fiona read, sojourners and exiles. In a sense, they should feel like foreigners or outsiders. Um, and then he says uh, foreigners and outsiders who essentially behave themselves. That's sort of what he says. And so the question I had today as I came to this is why, why would we expect uh, anyone to be compelled to be a part of that? Um, why, why would you want to be a part of a group that's supposed to behave themselves and is going to experience life as being a foreigner and an exile? It doesn't sound super pleasant, does it? Um, but first, to kind of explore this, we need to know what these concepts mean. Where do they come from? I think when we know where they come from, we'll know what they mean. And then we can look a little bit for the secret sauce or sauces, if you will, that, that make this actually compelling. And that's what I hope to show you today. Where, where these concepts come from, what do they mean, and what makes them compelling? So where they come from, simply, are they come from some key moments in the Bible, in the history of Israel. And people familiar with the Old Testament, like those who are reading Peter's letter, would have immediately thought two things. When they heard sojourner and exile, they would have thought of the Exodus story in the scriptures, and they would have thought of Israel's captivity in Babylon. They would have thought of those two things when they heard those two words. So, what are those all about? Cliff notes on the Exodus. God made some big promises to a man named Abraham. Abraham is kind of the patriarch over the Jewish faith, Christian faith, and the nation of Islam, if you will. They all trace their origins back to this man and the promises God made to him. And one of the, one of the clear things that God said, there were, there were good promises that a people would be created um, and that they would be no, more numerous than the stars of the heavens, but also that this people would be captive in Israel or in Egypt, sorry, for 400 years. And, and that is what happened to Abraham's family eventually. They were captive in Egypt for 400 years. And they came there because God had rescued them there through Joseph. Some of you know this story, Prince of Egypt fame, you know? If you've seen that movie, I'm just gonna refer all to Hollywood all night just to help you, right? But uh, Joseph uh, had, had come to Egypt, become actually really influential, and he'd gathered his family to him to take care of them during a time of famine. And they'd come to live there, and, and with time, they grew toward being a kingdom, in a way. And the Egyptians were jealous and threatened and began to oppress them. And the people of Israel began to cry out to God in misery because they were losing hope. So that happened. They, they were losing hope until God 
as we'd expect since 400 years had been a temporary promise until God responded and delivered them out of Egypt after a long period of time. And he didn't just deliver them simply or logically. He didn't give them a, a, like a war plan or a game plan or escape plan. He delivered them supernaturally in such a way that other people would see and hear about it. And, and many of you have heard these tales, right, of, the, of there were terrible things that happened in Egypt. There's the, the parting of the Red Sea, all sorts of incredible things that we look at. And we go, that's impossible. And that's precisely the point. They were supposed to be. It's kind of like the resurrection of Jesus. God didn't do this because it made sense, but because someone would look at it and say, there's no way that could happen, right? Unless God's here. And other people did see and hear about it. In fact, other nations were sometimes more in awe of what had happened to Israel than Israel was because Israel immediately realized that they had been taken out of everything they knew and everything they were comfortable with and they wanted to go back. Um, they kind of idolized their past there and they wanted to go back. And when they came into the territory of other nations, the people of those nations trembled because they had heard of the mighty acts of God. So Israel, the people of God, actually had less faith and awe in what God had done than a lot of their enemies. And so, because of this and other reasons, God had them sojourn in the wilderness. And that word sojourn simply means they, they were temporary residents in a wilderness for 40 years. Not a big wilderness, it was one you could cross very quickly, but they lived there for 40 years. They lived amongst the pagan nations, they lived in a certain amount of conflict uh, with God and with other people, and some of that was imposed upon them and some of them was brought on by themselves. And this was a difficult time in their history, but also one of the most important times in their history. So, you know, we have Bibles, and the vast majority of this scripture was delivered to them during that exile, during that sojourn, during that time in the wilderness. They actually heard from God. They met God. They encountered God in ways they never had before. They received the words of God. They received signs that pointed to Jesus. Um, later on, they received the, the water from the rock that would be compared to what Jesus would do. They received uh, healing by a serpent that was lifted up on a pole that would be uh, kind of a foreshadowing of what it would be like for Jesus to die on the cross. And then they were given, after a period of time, a new deliverer whose name was Joshua. And that means the Lord is your salvation, who by another miracle of God led them into the land they'd been promised a generation before. So though they didn't deserve to actually get what God had promised to them, they'd been quite unfaithful, God did give it to them by his power. And, uh, and that, interestingly, that name Joshua, if you kind of turn it into Greek, um, is the same name essentially for Jesus. That when Jesus came, it would not have been lost on people that he had about the same name as the man who had led them out by a miracle from their sojourn in the wilderness, okay? So these people would have seen these connections. They would have seen our people once we once were temporary residents in the wilderness because of our own issues, because of our own unbelief, and God graciously delivered us anyway through a man whose name was the Lord is our salvation. And they would have seen some connections between that and what Jesus had done for them, okay? So when Peter's audience heard that they were sojourners, that's the analogy that came to mind. They were like the people of God in a wilderness, standing between two moments of redemption two moments of grace, um, two miracles, 
They were in between. Two really important things. And, and in a moment, in a period of time where God was going to reveal himself more than ever. It was a difficult time, but a grace-filled time. A time of suffering that ended with a salvation as promised and landed them exactly where God had promised that they'd be all along. So that's the sojourn they would have thought of. Exile, what about that? Israel was partially taken captive uh, at other times, but none rivaled their exile in Babylon. And this is very you know, historically documented. The great King Nebuchadnezzar, um, who was a, a world power, and the people of Israel are, are taken captive. They're brought into this nation of Babylon. The idea that the Babylonians have is they're going to obliterate their identity um, and make them into Babylonians themselves. It's a time of great loss for Israel. Jerusalem's siege, the temple's destroyed. Um, and it's also, though, um, though it is the time of great pain and great loss, a time when God's people, Israelites, became well, more well-known than ever. Um, they scattered throughout the world, and some of them, like Daniel, famous for the lion's den, um, become influential. They actually, not only do they go and, and sort of, you know, scatter throughout the world, but they actually make their God known throughout the world in ways they never would have had they not been taken into exile. And again, they were promised a, a deliverance. Uh, one, of, one of the most like placable Bible verses ever is Jeremiah 29, 11. It was written to these people. Um, many of you have heard this one. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And that's a great sounding promise. We often apply it too liberally, but, but it is a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful promise. And it was given to them in a, in a very specific context that these people listening to Peter would have remembered. Jeremiah had written to God's people a few things that they didn't want to hear right before he said that. Some people were promising to them kind of a quick fix, a deliverance, or a moment of rapture, which would mean a moment in which you get out quick. You kind of get a quick solution. Mike sent a video around to some of us as leaders of a guy who was sharing that, that even today people are looking for rapture moments, like quick fixes, quick you know, here, here's how to get out. Here's how to get your group on top of things as fast as possible. Those are, those are kind of rapture moments. And people were wanting to hear that. And God, actually, and you can read about this in the entire chapter of Jeremiah, but he said, don't listen to those people. They're lying to you. Instead, here's what you're going to do. You're going to settle in, have kids, build homes, tend your gardens. And in fact, you're going to pray for the city of Babylon because when Babylon succeeds, so will you. When Babylon does well, so will you. When it prospers, so will you. And their welfare will be your welfare, so settle down and pray for your neighbors, is basically what God said to them. And interestingly, Israel would eventually be freed from their exile. A new, more lenient king, Cyrus of Persia, came along and let them have their identity back, though he demanded other things uh, from them. Side note, did, notice Babylon's strategy was demolish their identity, Persia's strategy was let them have their identity as long as they're, you know, committed to us. If you really look hard, you can recognize the American right and left in those two, by the way. Go do, have some fun with that. Go, go down that path if you want. Um, but but that they, they, went back to, they went back home, just as God had told them. They went back home. And not only, you know, did they get the, the freedom that they had hoped for? But Babylon was indeed blessed by Israel. 
Even the great King Nebuchadnezzar, even he encountered God during this period of time. And there are many ways in which Israel became world famous during this time. This period prepared Israel for what would happen through the good news of Jesus. When those people were were dispersed out, later on, when Jesus sends his apostles into all the world and they go out and they find the little Jewish synagogues scattered all around, that, that scattering began at this exile. It's part of the reason the gospel was able to spread, okay? So when Peter's readers read of the exile, they knew about this history and what it meant. It meant to be in a time awaiting deliverance, a time in between, a time in between an old Jerusalem that had been demolished and a new Jerusalem that would be rebuilt, a time before, you know, between one miracle, a time before another miracle, when God would redeem them and keep the promise that he told to them, a time between temples, a time in which they lived among people who didn't believe and had to maintain their distinct identity while also, you know, living by the rules of another nation to some extent. They were to be a light in the midst of the darkness. So that's where Peter got his analogies from. Um, and I've, you've sort of seen what they mean, but I want to look for just a couple common elements. I want to point out a couple common elements. What else did they mean? In sojourn and exile, you discover more deeply your unique identity, your distinct identity. In times of sojourn and exile, people discover more deeply their distinct identity. You hold on to an eschatological hope. I'll work out that word. It's a big one. But you hold on to an eschatological hope and you depend on the presence of God. A distinct identity. Okay, back to Eddie Munson. I told you, we're going to hang out with him a little bit here. Eddie Munson's in a, in a club called the Hellfire Club, all right? And they play a lot of D&D. Now, for a guy like, like an Eddie Munson type, you need, you need somewhere to belong, right? You, maybe you don't belong in the herd. You don't belong with all the kids in school. You need somewhere where you belong. And how much more true when you have a purpose, so the big, the big thing, again, I'm, try, I'm, not, I'm not giving you a spoiler here, but the thing with Eddie Munson is he becomes a part of a quest. The forces of evil are going to take over, and he gets brought in deeper into that. It's a time of fear. He's scared, but he gets brought into a more meaningful and deeper spiritual quest than ever before. In a sense, he had the, he had the Hellfire Club and now he got, he's, now he's fighting the powers of hell, like really in his world, right? Not fitting in or being distinct is hard, but it can also be the doorway to deeper belonging. That's sort of what happens with, with this character in Stranger Things. Like not fitting in has led him to be a part of a little club, and then he ends up being a part of a very small group of people doing something extremely, extremely important. Now, it's important for, for us in the real world to find this belonging for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons, not false, you know, based on false hopes. The prophet Jeremiah, back to the people in exile, was, was saying something that could be applied to many of us in our day. There, there's always going to be people out there that tell you there's a quick fix or a rapturous exit, but God usually is calling you to be distinct for a long time, to be committed in the midst of, you know, like a lifelong quest, not just something quick, right? Um, in the exile, right, there, there's incredible ways that God is at work, but it's not 
fast because God has a plan that might, be, might feel slow to us. Being distinct is hard, but it actually can draw you deeper into who you really are. Um, another reason that, another thing we should think about is that the plan of God often isn't as us versus them as we tend to be. We can see that in the exile too, um, or, or actually in the exodus and the exile. In the exodus, in the wilderness of Israel, it's not just God's people out there all by themselves. There's some interesting facts. When God's people are delivered out of Egypt, Egyptians joined them. Did you, did you know that? Like Egyptians joined them. They wanted out too. This people of God wasn't just made up of like a certain ethnicity or a certain group. They invited in at that time Egyptians with them. When they went out among the other nations, people from those other nations joined them. I mentioned a, a really profound moment in which Rahab, who is a, a spot, or sorry, is a prostitute who gets, is encountered by spies of Israel, actually becomes included into the people of God and ends up in the family tree of Jesus. Here's a foreigner and a prostitute who's invited in. So it's not just about being distinct like we're better than you. It's being invitational and distinct. God is building a people when they're in their sojourn. And in the exile, right, Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, he has an encounter with God. There are numbers of people who experience people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, um, who, who see who this God is. There's something incredible about this God. It's invitational. It's not us versus them. It's not being like, like we're outsiders, everybody stay out. It's like maybe we're small, but everybody's invited in if they can come and worship the God that we worship. And the plan of God isn't as escapist as we tend to be. It's not leave the old world behind. No, because in the sojourn in exile, right? In the sojourn in exile, think about this parallel that people would have made. The sojourn was they were looking at a promised land, real land, a place where God was bringing them. It wasn't to get away from the earth, to get away from the creation. In the, in the exile, they're going to come back home. They're going to come back to, to Jerusalem. And the same is true in the way that the Bible speaks about our period of time now, the period of time that Christians are in now. It really does. It talks about a new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. It talks about a renewed heavens and earth where faithful people actually govern things and work. They're just out from under the curse. It's not this disembodied reality. It's, it's creation recreated, made the way it's supposed to be. So the distinct identity is, is really, it's not just about like being separate from everybody. It's about having a deeper level of hope and actually some really profound grace that gets to be extended out to other people. Speaking of hope, here comes that word, eschatological. Um, that's, I, I throw that word out there. That's the word that, that a lot of times in religious circles gets, gets layered on, and, it, and, it, and accurately, but it, the end times eschatology, okay? And the idea of, of eschatology is often misconstrued as just like when things, when things close, when things are finalized, when they're destroyed. But truthfully, in the scriptures, it's when things reach their intended purpose, when things are fulfilled, when things become the way that they're supposed to be. Um, how do you endure painful, difficult, or imperfect times? You need hope, the idea of having an eschatology is having a hope. 
I've been reading a book on resilient people called Grit. I mentioned it last week. And one of the things that like resilient people have, they point out in this book is hope. In the book, they just couldn't tell you in what. They just have to have hope in something, right? But people who have hope are resilient. Um, I was already moving this direction under new identity, but you know, we don't just have our inner selves. Ourselves are part of our stories, right? We are part of our family. Um, I, I do premarital work with people, and every time we talk about their marriage, we inevitably start talking about their parents' marriages. Every single time. Like, our hope is tied up in our story, in our family, in the places we are from and the places we long to be. Every time I talk to people who are, say, getting married or starting off on a new period of life, there's, there's like, I want to be here. Maybe that's career. Maybe it's a place. Maybe it's a town, a city. But they're thinking about, who, where am I from? Where do I want to be? Eschatology is speaking of the future, of things hoped for. It's speaking of these things that we think about when we, when we make big decisions in life. It's an exercise of faith. Faith, the book of Hebrews says, is the substance of the things we hope for and the evidence of things we can't see. It can be big stuff, like for Christians, the return of Christ. That's a future hope, but it's also in the details, such as how does Christ return? He returns as a city is established on the earth, it says, a new Jerusalem, filled with streets and windows and doors. I, I, br- I always bring this up. Isn't it incredible that the city that comes down is made out of all the things that we have made? That God takes all the things that we humans have made and infuses them with perfection, and that's what the hope is. It's the fusion of the two. The purity of Eden with the ingenuity of Jerusalem. Eschatology is God making all things new. It's hope for the world, but also for any broken person or system or technology. And it's what compels us to keep working, creating, and innovating. Is because God isn't just looking down at all the stuff that we do and going, yeah, have fun with that until I return and stick you on a cloud. God's looking down at all of it and saying, I have a plan for that. So to be a sojourner in exile, you need to believe there's a promised land. You need to believe there's redemption. To endure the weight, you need faith in what you wait for. The sojourn is temporary. The exile will end. And in all of this, you don't just wait alone. You wait with your people, with people of faith, uh, but most of all, with a very present God. How can you hope and work and patiently wait, especially while experiencing being an outsider. You need a God who is present with you. When people would have heard Peter's letter, the sojourn, God is present in his prophet Moses speaking God's words to them. He's present on the mountain delivering the law to them. He's present in the fire and the cloud. He's present in the tabernacle covering over their sins, bringing them near to his presence, right? In the exile, the people learn they don't have to have a temple because they can go and pray in secret and God will meet with them there. And this all comes together perfectly in Jesus who entered into our midst, spoke to us in person, fulfilled the role of a priest who became like a sacrifice in the temple, who accepted a death and and made an offering out of his own life to atone for what we've done wrong, who makes us acceptable makes us able to be inhabited by his spirit. There's so many things 
that happen in a time of sojourn and exile. And for us, in this time after Jesus, they're even more profound. We discover our distinct identity, our hope, and, and we discover that God is with us, his presence. So not only do, uh, do, we, do we see these things, but we experience these things the most in these times. Just like, just like the people of Israel experienced God the most in their in their period of sojourn and exile, so we experience God the most now as we wait. And the people who read Peter's letter would have thought of that. So I opened with these questions about being an outsider. Why would you choose to be one? Why, why would that be compelling? Why would you embrace the both and of being in a group that is supposed to be out? Like I'm kind of saying to us all, to be a part of the Christian church is, is a call to be an outsider. It's to be inside a group that's supposed to be outside. So just to apply this a little more, back to Eddie Munson, right? My favorite guy tonight. He's an accidental analogy. Our scripture tells us as sojourners and exiles, it, it gives an application to abstain from the passions of the flesh that war against your soul. We all have passions and the things we obsess over and become enslaved to. And we usually know they aren't good for us. And being a part of a Christian community invites you to change. And it's almost always for the better. Now, for those of you who've seen Stranger Things season four, there's a little detail here that I missed. And that is that at the beginning of the season, Eddie Munson is a drug dealer, right? This is one of his things he does to get by. It's a byproduct of, of a life that is difficult and uh, a life of being an outsider. And then he gets brought into a bigger story because spiritual darkness comes in and, and manifests itself right in front of him. And one of the big effects that happens to him is as the season goes on, you know what he doesn't have any time for? Selling drugs. I think this, I think even if they'd written it in, it would have been weird. Like he literally has no time. He's doing things of so much more meaning and importance. They have profoundly changed him. He doesn't have time for that. And, and I think there's something, there's something to say when we talk about this idea of how we're going to be at war against these passions of our flesh, abstaining from the passions of, of the flesh. Now, I know that's just Netflix, that's just Hollywood, but I think all good stories stumble on some truth when you see yourself as part of a bigger story, when you have a huge hope, when there's something you're really fighting for that matters, um, it doesn't mean you just lose comfort because you're an outsider. It, it changes you. You don't have time for some other stuff. Like, why would you be running after that when you're running after this? Like, when people's lives are on the line, why would you be, you know, aiding in their destruction? Like, why? How? What, how could you justify it? I think in the Eddie Munson story, we see something like that. When you become a part of a bigger and mo more profound story, not, you don't just have to go like, oh, I'm going to try not to do bad things. Like your focus is entirely on something new. You're not just trying to quit. You're transformed. And it becomes not just for your own sake. The coolest part of the Eddie Munson character is that he changes for the sake of others. At the beginning, he is selfish. At the end, he is selfless. And when you've been given grace and acceptance, it can transform you into someone who not only like changes some of their behaviors, but changes what they love and how they love. 
I want to ratchet it up above what Stranger Things is able to do. They acknowledge the presence of spiritual darkness, but Peter says we can go further than that. For Christians, you can go even further than just fighting against evil, which is important. But Peter says we can actually glorify God, that people might see your good deeds and glorify God, he says. Now, think about this. Do you ever get a sense that you exist for a reason, that for some greater purpose, um, that there's a deeper meaning to what you do in the world than others might see or acknowledge? Sometimes you might even struggle to hope that it's true, but it seems that the people that you love, the things that you understand, the things that you think, your ideas, your concerns are actually of deeper significance. Well, if you were made for God and to point to God, then all that's true. What's also true is that you're not at the center of the universe. God is. That can also be true. What a powerful combination. You can be great without being conceited. You can be free to fail because you are not the ultimate being in the, uni- in the universe. A community that glorifies God together can do this together and help each other walk into these things. We can be great without conceit. We can fail because we have a fallback. Also in such a community, deep imagination can thrive. Uh, that video that I mentioned that Mike sent me was super good. The guy wanted to cultivate a grounded hopefulness um, that, that wasn't just you know rapture moments where you get out quick, but where you actually work for long-term change. But, and I'm, I'm very glad that this guy cares about these things, but something that stuck out for me was that without God, there, there is a voice in the back of your head that says what many of the skeptics have said forever, which is, you know, what are you working for? It's all going to dissolve. It doesn't matter in the end. Without, without God, the world and all we make of it, the justice we seek, the work that we do, truly is going nowhere, right? And we've ta- I've, shared, I've shared, you know, from Woody Allen to philosophers who, who are saying, like, they're saying, look, without God, it's going nowhere, right? The comet's going to come, the climate's going to change, and it's going to melt, and it, go, and it ends in nothing, it's hard to get motivated by that. I mean, you could try. There's, you could do it for the sake of your family to live in a hotter Tucson, right? I mean, but it's hard to get motivated about that. But imagination thrives when there's hope. If there's no God at the genesis or the center of things, that haunting feeling that it's a waste comes creeping in and it actually cuts you off at the knees. But Christians can call that temptation. They can call that an evil voice. But if it's all gobbledygook, you know, if it's all just, if all, if all religions are a joke, then it's just true. It's hard for your imagination to soar, to fight the darkness when you're doomed. That's the other interesting thing in Stranger Things. They have hope. I'm still trying to figure it out. Like, what hope do they have for Hawkins and why, right? Like, what, what's, the, what's the big idea that they, you know, they get rid of the upside down or they all move there and actually just like find it to be a really pleasant place to live? Like, I'm not sure what the, the hope is. It doesn't bother me because it's just a show. But, but if the hope is just like a better Hawkins that's temporary, it's not, I don't know if it really has enough oomph to it. 
But at the center of Christian community is a hope that's in God. God not only in the abstract, but God is revealed. A God who has delivered on promises before. That's why Peter points you back to things like the sojourn and the exile. He's saying, look, these are, these are historical events in which God made promises to people and they actually came true. And he's made bigger ones in Jesus. And you're supposed to look back and say, the God who was faithful back then is going to be faithful again. This God has never failed us yet. He's proved again and again that what we can feel and experience as a disaster is often more like a birth pain after which there is a glorious good. Exodus leads to Canaan. The exile leads to a new Jerusalem. The crucifixion of Jesus leads to the resurrection. And ultimately, that there is a new heavens and a new earth. And if this is true, we can face our fears and overcome them. Our imaginations can soar. I want to give you an example of how this has happened in somebody's life. You've heard me talk about this before, too. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a book called Leaf by Niggle, right? And J.R.R. Tolkien, um, niggle, by the way, is a word for, like, anxious criticism. And he is niggle in the book. He was an anxious man and a critical man, J.R.R. Tolkien was, and especially of himself. And he was depressed because his friend C.S. Lewis was an incredible writer and just churned out books, right? Lewis is writing, oh, let's write The Four Loves. Let's write Narnia. Let's just keep going with Narnia. Like, Lewis is churning out all this material. Tolkien can't get a book done. And he was jealous. And he was bothered. And he had a dream one night. And he wrote down his dream as a story. And the gist is this, that there's an artist who had a tree and a, and a, a scene in his mind. And the artist is he's, he's wanting to create it, but he can't ever get it right. In fact, he's obsessing over this leaf and he can't get it right and he's unhappy with it. And, and all these things occur. The, the piece of art ends up, get, it gets used to just patch a hole in a house and it all feels very, like it just all went to waste and the guy dies, okay? And, and Tolkien's Catholic, so there's a purgatory. And then after, after this kind of purgatory experience in which his sins are cleansed. He is entering into a new land and all of a sudden he looks into that land and he sees a scene and it's the scene he always imagined in his mind, except it's not on a canvas, it's real. Now, do you see what Tolkien was seeing in that? He was seeing that, that through the work of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the things that we toil over and attempt and imperfectly, you know, critically can't get past that God takes those and perfects them someday. That it's not a waste of time. And that can actually transform you. Not only it doesn't have to make you just kind of look at heaven and go, oh, I can't wait to be there. It can change your life. How do I know that? Look at J.R.R. Tolkien. What did he end up getting done? One of the most incredible you know, books uh, that, that any of us have ever experienced, like Lord of the Rings. I mean, he invented languages, full-on languages for the people in that book. It's one of the most incredible pieces of literature that's ever hit the shelves. It's still huge. Movies are being made about it. Why? Because it was incredible work that he pressed through because he believed that God was going to take his imperfect things that he was so critical of and perfect them someday so he could keep moving in this life. Of course, key to Tolkien and key to the Apostle Peter and all Christians is that the path through 
all of this has been walked before us. And the payment for our failures has been made. Jesus not only came to earth, he descended and endured a level of sojourn we will never understand. What's it like for God to become an outsider? You ever thought about that? What's it like for God to become a reject? That's what happened to Jesus. Not only that, he stood for his friends. He bore the furies of hell itself. Think of the bats and the upside down. Not only that, think about the guilt and the shame that Jesus bore on himself. The fuel of Vecna, right, is people's shame. The twisting of all good things, our iniquities, the fuel of Sauron and the Lord of the Rings. That's what fuels the enemy in that good book. He took it on himself when he hung up on the cross and descended into hell, into Mordor, into the upside down. It's not just bringing stuff up like this. I don't just do this to be relevant. I'm trying to say the best imaginations of our day can only borrow from the greatest story ever told. How can you be a part of it? How do you join into the community? Through the one who was self-sacrificial for you. Who, like Gandalf, was not destroyed by death, but was glorified. You see how the greatest stories borrow And that's what's beautiful. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, um, it can be hard to believe that there's there's a hope. It can be hard to believe that something stands out before us that's actually better than what we experience now. It can be hard to believe that you rose from the dead. It can be hard to believe that you will actually deliver us that this world we live in and work in um, is leading somewhere good. But God, all throughout history, we see some of the most creative and powerful people have anchored their hope in you. Why is that? We also see that darkness is so prevalent. It's a real fight. It's not a joke. We need to fight the darkness. We need power. We need strength. We need hope. I pray that you give it to us through Jesus. I pray that when we experience life as uh, sojourners and exiles, that we wouldn't see that as uh, something that depresses us, but something that gives us hope. That though there's a, we're kind of a small little band of, of people who put their hope in you, who look like fools sometimes, that you've always been faithful. You've always carried your people through. And if you rose from the dead, our hope is eternal. So God, seed that hope deep in our souls and make us powerful and effective. Help us to stand out like, like, a, like something that just doesn't fit in here in this world. But help us to be comfortable in who you say that we are. And help us to stay focused on your kingdom and to live for you. Help us to abstain from the things that war against our flesh, not because we're trying to be good, but because we're fighting for something that's worthwhile. I pray that you would transform us in Jesus' name. What we're going to do now is we're going to prepare and, uh, and worship. We're going to take two minutes of silence. This is kind of a tradition here in which we just sit before God and think about these things. Maybe you're, um, maybe something, something in there you know, piqued your interest and you just want to ask God questions about it. Maybe there's something, uh, one of those things that, that you're like, you know, I think that's, this is pulling me away. This is one of my desires of my flesh that's actually pulling me away from focusing on what I should Or maybe your hope's just weak and you need to pray, God, um, give me hope. 
You're, uh, this is a time for you to just pray any prayer you need to pray for two minutes. Then uh, we're going to sing together, and at some point I will come up and dispense the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, we have Jesus saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood of a new covenant poured out for, for the forgiveness of many. This is, this is Jesus, the one who walked before us, who's saying, look, you can find your identity in me. You can find, you know, I am, the, I am your body and blood. Um, you can find your hope in me. I'm, I'm your hope for the future because I, I rose from the dead. Um, and also Jesus saying, I've never left you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Um, just as we come to this table, remember, we remember not that he was once here, but he promises his presence with us for all of eternity. So I'm going to say a brief prayer. There's going to be that two minutes of silence, and then you're welcome. Even if you can just say, um, I, I want to believe, God help my unbelief, then you're welcome to come and receive the Lord's Supper. Um, if you're not there, that's okay. We respect that, and we love when people just come and listen in. So, so know that, that there is no pressure. Um, in fact, we love that, that you would respect this enough to, to wait if that's not where you're at. So I'll pray, and, uh, and we'll enter into this time of worship together. Father in heaven, thank you for this group of people that you gathered today. Uh, we're glad that, that we get to center our hope in you and proclaim it. Um, what you've done is great and mysterious. I'm sure only the, the very tip of the iceberg has come through this evening. But I pray that you would take these thoughts, these ideas, this bread and this wine, and that you would transform us through these feeble things, these small things, and that you would communicate to our hearts something deeper and more profound, your very presence, your power, your creative energy, your resurrection. I pray that you would minister to us in our hearts with these things. Lead us now as we pray.